Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is a special bonus episode of Intercepted. There's a very mild collegial debate brewing among Democrats in Congress to impeach or not. Calls are mounting for the opening of an impeachment inquiry, and the effort now has the support of at least one Republican congressman, Justin Amash, the libertarian politician from Michigan. Nonetheless, we have a job to do, and I think we owe it to the American people to, uh, to represent them, to ensure that the people we have in office are doing the right thing, are of good character, aren't violating the public trust. Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, has not shown any sign that she will back such a move imminently, and she appears to be opting for a tactic of trying to drive Trump insane. She said this to reporters last week. Uh, would you believe that it's important for the, the, to follow the facts? Uh, we believe that no one is above the law, including the President of the United States, and we believe that the President of the United States is engaged in a cover-up, in a cover-up, and that was the nature Trump then staged his massive tantrum and put on a performance of calling off a meeting with congressional Democrats about infrastructure and marching out to the Rose Garden to denounce the Mueller investigation and Nancy Pelosi in general. And I just saw that Nancy Pelosi, just before our meeting, made a statement that we believe that the president of the United States is engaged in a cover up. Well, it turns out I'm the most, and I think most of you would agree to this, I'm the most transparent president probably in the history of this country. Trump seems to be going nuts from the Democrats' continuing probe into his possible obstruction of justice, corruption, abuse of power. And regarding Pelosi, the right wing and Trump backers hit back. A doctored video featuring a slowed down Nancy Pelosi went viral on social media. Rudy Giuliani and Trump himself shared that altered video. Trump also called Pelosi, quote, a mess. And Pelosi tweeted back at him, quote, when the, quote, extremely stable genius starts acting more presidential, I'll be happy to work with him on infrastructure, trade and other issues. Nancy Pelosi is, of course, the top Democrat in Congress. She's the House Speaker, third in line to the presidency. Despite Trump controlling the White House and the GOP with a firm grip on the Senate, Nancy Pelosi is incredibly powerful, and it's important to understand who she is, how she rose to power, and what her endgame strategy with Trump might look like. 
to discuss this and the current state of the Democratic Party. I'm joined by my colleague, Ryan Grimm, the Intercept's D.C. Bureau Chief. Ryan has a new book out this week that provides essential in-depth context for the political landscape that we're in right now. It's called We've Got People, from Jesse Jackson to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement. Ryan Grimm, welcome back to Intercepted. It's good to be here. Congrats on the book. Ah, thank you. Clearly, Nancy Pelosi is in the news a lot lately and is going to continue to be in the news around this issue of impeachment and then her really clearly getting under Trump's skin by saying that he's engaged in a in a cover-up. For, for people that uh, don't know much about Nancy Pelosi, and you cover this in the book as you kind of trace the modern history of the, of the Democratic Party, what is the Nancy Pelosi story? How did she end up where she yeah. is in the third most powerful position in the U.S. government? It's been fun to watch this precise moment because it's such an encapsulation of her career and not just who she is, but like who her entire generation is. And so she herself has a fascinating background. She was raised by a kind of mob-connected congressman slash mayor of, of Baltimore. So she learned, you know, actual brass knuckles politics from a very early age, then moved out west. And so she has this like fighting, like actual fighting liberal sensibility that's that's quite rare. She turned out to have an extraordinary ability to raise money. And so while she was raising five children, she was also acting as a fundraiser for the party and kind of working her way up through the party ranks in the 1970s and 1980s. And she she wasn't in an elected position at that right, point. That's that's right. She actually ran for DNC chair at one point and, and barely lost to the guy who replaced Ted Kennedy in the Senate in a weird, weird coincidence. But no, she had not run for any elected office. She was a very much behind the scenes fundraiser slash operative. And she became very close uh, with a guy named Phil Burton, who was also known as a fighting liberal. He was a guy who, he died early, died in 1983, but if he had lived, would have kind of changed the course of democratic history because he was the kind of guy who was not only progressive, but wanted to punch you in the face and also was all about raising a ton of money and screwing Republicans. Like he basically invented gerrymandering in California and screwed Republicans out of a ton of districts there. Essentially, Pelosi is Burton's Burton's lieutenant, kind of an enforcer and a fundraiser back back home. He dies in 1983. His, his wife takes over for him and serves four years. She then dies. On her deathbed, she endorses Nancy Pelosi to take her seat. So there's now there's a special election in 1987. Her top opponent is the vice chair of the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, openly gay man running on basically Reagan's ignoring the AIDS epidemic. What is the position that Pelosi is running for at this point? The Congress. This is her first run for a House seat. For her first run for any elected office, and she's running to replace kind of her, her mentor and then her, her mentor's wife. And so it, it's a real establishment versus insurgent race. So Nancy Pelosi likes to say that she's from the Bay Area and so she understands the left. That's true in the sense that she beat the left to win her seat. It's not, it's not that she organized support among the left, but she barely won. If they were using the current top two system, I think she would have lost her first seat and there would be no Nancy Pelosi. But she wins in 1987. She joins Steny Hoyer, who'd been there for a while already, and a, a class of, of Democrats who came in in the late 70s and 80s, kind of just as the party was ending. And in 1980, not only did you have Ronald Reagan elected and have him reelected in 1984. But in 80, a whole slew of liberal lions who'd been 
running for president just four years earlier, who'd been serving five, six terms, famous people at the time, like uh, Birch Bayh, Frank Church, all upset by his upstart insurgent Republicans. And so you've got this rise of the new right, Newt, Newt Gingrich elected in 78, uh, and then Reagan in 80. And it teaches people like Pelosi that liberalism is going to cost them elections. That if they let the country know, you know how progressive they are, then there's going to be a backlash. And they learned that lesson over and over throughout the 80s as, as Reagan kept pounding them. They still controlled the House of Representatives, even though they lost the Senate and the White House. And so what they did is, they said, well, we've got the House. Let's go to the banks. Let's go to the corporate America and say, look, we're not necessarily doing a lot for you, but we control the House, so you'll pay up. And that was the way that they figured that they were going to be able to match Republicans. Wait, uh, when you say pay up, are you talking about campaign contributions? Right, because prior to 1980... Uh, the the party, you know, the big money was not as much of a thing in politics. You know, they had labor support. Uh, they had, you know, some corporate money and some some wealthy donor money. But it wasn't anywhere near the scale that, that we have today. And so they, they pivoted after 1980 to say, well, we lost, they say they diagnosed their 1980 problem as Republicans outspent us and outmaneuvered us. So we need to match them dollar for dollar. And to do that, we need to use our our, our position in the House of Representatives and extract money from industry. Uh, that, that, that leads in an obvious direction. Uh, it, it reshaped the party and it ended up you know, with the, the party of Bill Clinton and the, and the party that we have today. But as you watch Nancy Pelosi trying to navigate Trump, all she's thinking about is, is the Reagan era, that if she says that she's for impeachment, if she says she's for Medicare for all, if she says she's for a Green New Deal, that the country is going to recoil at their progressivism and they're going to be thrown out. Is it entirely that or is it that Pelosi believes in the policies that she's uh, worked for her entire career, that she, she isn't so, as progressive as, as, as somebody who says, oh, well, I'm from San Francisco, I understand right. the left. Right. I mean, there is that because she was the, the right wing candidate in that, in that primary. So there absolutely is that. But at the same time, once you've been acting out a certain way for 30 or 40 years, the question of what you actually believe becomes impossible to disentangle it, and it almost doesn't matter. Like she's been doing this for since then, and whether you know what exists in the recesses of her heart uh, is immaterial, really. So Pelosi gets elected in in this special election that you're describing, where her opponent was uh, a Democratic Socialist of America, and she barely wins that race. How does she then ascend within the? party to any kind of a leadership position? Well, she had the the same abilities that her predecessor, Phil Burton, had, that incredible vote counter and a tremendous fundraiser. And so because there was so much emphasis by 87 on fundraising, you know, she just raised an extraordinary amount of money and would distribute it to colleagues. And because she was also tactically proficient within the caucus, she was able to carve out a place for herself. By 2001, you know, Dick Gebhardt is washing out of his career finally, and she ends up, you know, replacing him around around that time to be to become minority leader. And so she was she's minority leader 2002, 2004. Then when they finally take over in 2006, she's 
she's well positioned that nobody can nobody can challenge her by then. And she becomes the the first Speaks. elected speaker of the yeah. House. That's a, that was a woman, right? So as Pelosi and other Democrats are sort of shifting the 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 party in some ways toward big money, toward Wall Street. And then Pelosi ends up in this position where she's minority leader and then ultimately becomes Speaker of the House. When, when you talk about her ability to count votes for the lay people among us, myself included, explain exactly what that yeah. means. Because it, you hear it now every day on cable that oh, Pelosi is right. this expert. You know, she, She's great with the whip. She's good with the vote count. What does mm-hmm. that mean just to ordinary yeah, and, folks? And like I said, her... Her mentor had it too, um, and her, her, presumably her father as well. But it it means understanding exactly what the other person needs and is also afraid of, and it's, and it's, so it also means having a tactile feel for the district that somebody represents, and understanding that a swing district in Iowa is not a swing district in in Southern California, or and it's not one in Central Pennsylvania, and just having that kind of knowledge. And that ability to listen to that other person and be transactional in what you can offer them, uh, stick by those promises, uh, deliver on them, and if somebody screws you, to remember it. People will tell stories like there'll be 40 freshmen in a uh, in a meeting, and she'll go around the room and will point to each one of them and say, "You screwed me on that motion to recommit last Tuesday. I don't ever want to see it happen again." You know, you hit me on April third with this in committee. You know, she she knows she knows if you voted the wrong way in a committee hearing, and part of that is just this work ethic where she's putting in these absurd, you know, sixteen, eighteen hour days, and which which people have been talking about her and other people like her who just have this kind of maniacal drive, and so you you combine all those different things, and you just don't want to cross her. I was actually talking to somebody just yesterday about a fight that she'd had with somebody else and his own boss said something said something like you you don't want to get on the other end of the steely gaze of Pelosi. Like she she just has this like raw kind of power that she's holding in reserve. She's extremely powerful. Right. I mean she she's one of the most powerful people in this country without right. question. But then when you see her at a press conference you're like how's this possible? She can't put a sentence together. Uh, you, you got a glimpse of it in her in that one televised meeting with Trump where she kind of shut him down over the wall. It was six months ago or so. Um, in that you, you kind of saw the like inside Pelosi coming out with the cam when the with the cameras on her. But but that but that's basically what it means. A, a willingness to destroy somebody and an ability to reward somebody and knowing what the reward is that that person wants. And kind of an amorality about the whole thing, not getting hung up on whether uh, what you're doing is right or wrong. Talk about Pelosi during the Bush-Cheney era, uh, because Pelosi was was the subject of a lot of protest and anger from the left um, for a number of reasons, uh, whether it's the, the Patriot Act or the authorization for the use of military force, or saying we're taking impeachment off the table mm-hmm. when, it, when it came to, to Bush. What was her role and how did she function during the eight years of Bush-Cheney? Right. So, so she's always been, um, she's carried the San Francisco flag in the sense of being broadly anti-war, voted against the Iraq war. But otherwise, she was deeply hawkish um, in private meeting with Bush administration, national security officials. They would describe, when, you know, when they described to her, what waterboarding was like and what they're doing, she would say, well, what else can you do? Not wait. 
this this appears criminal. What are you doing? But but what more can you do? She was like a lot of the Democrats, both personally shaken by 9-11 and filled with this like, we're going to get them sense of revenge, but also that the fear that, that they had that they were going to be rejected as too liberal was exacerbated after 9-11. They felt like, oh, oh God, now, now they're really going to think we're, we're too liberal because not only are, are we tax and spenders, but we're weak on defense too. You know, they, we, we don't even, because we've been at war now for so many years, I think people in, in our, our generation and, and younger don't, don't recognize how kind of uh, traumatized that older generation is by the charge that they're weak on defense, that they're weak on the military. Um, it, it, it would almost be nice if we could say that about the Democrats today. It's no longer remotely true, but that was what Pelosi was was reacting to, and so that's why you had so many Democrats that voted for the Iraq War, and people like her who supported the AUMF, who supported rendition and all these other war crimes that that the Bush administration was participating in, which then enabled the Obama administration to you know continue them. Let's talk about the eight years of Bill Clinton and how that impacted the arc. Uh, of the Democratic Party in terms of a, of, of a historical analysis. Um, what was the impact of Clintonism on the Democratic Party? Vanquishing kind of the Rainbow Coalition in 1988. You know, this Jesse Jackson uh, following Harold Washington before him, they kind of organized this grassroots movement to say, look, you don't, have, you don't need big money. You don't need to try to get back these Reagan Democrats. What you need to do is expand the electorate, go out and register new voters. You know, can confront this rise of the new right with a with a new left. Oh, I mean, everybody, every if you if you're listening and you have never watched the convention speeches of Jesse Jackson when he was running for for president, it's uh, it, it's an incredible moment in U.S. history, and you really can see in the passion and the you know the the drenched in sweat and but what he was saying and and the the vision that Jesse Jackson had about. Uh, multiculturalism and needing to grapple with race and sexual orientation. I mean, he was way yeah. ahead of the of the curve, and he lost to the to the big right. establishment Democrats. And that system churned out Bill Clinton. Right. And the response to Reagan and and Bush ultimately was a pretty conservative Southern governor in right. Bill Clinton. And what people don't realize because it's gone down the memory hole is that that Jackson very nearly won. There, and I write about this in the book. There's a part. The Democratic primary. Yeah, almost, very nearly won the Democratic primary. And then he's running against George H.W. Bush, which, you know, who knows? You know, it's, it's hard to conceive of, but who knows? Uh, very, it came very close. And the Democratic Party had a complete apoplectic meltdown when it when it appeared like he actually might seize, seize the nomination. You're, you're talking about in 88. 88. So instead, they went with the electable Michael Dukakis. Uh, but you're right. So it, it, that then opens the way for the, these new Democrats, this Bill, Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton's famous sister soldier moment, um, which this is summer of 1992, where he basically uh, dredges up uh, an obscure rapper. She hadn't ever been above, I think, 82 on Billboard. She's like she follows me on Twitter, time. Ryan, she's great and has now. praised my Blackwater she's, book. So it's, she's you know. great now, and she's an author um, and, and, a, and, a, and an interesting interesting person. Uh, at the time, I think she was like 17. And, yeah, she was, you know, she was a young uh, rapper, and, and, and this was at the moment, too, when you had the the rise of NWA and other so-called gangster rap that then Joe, the Joe Liebermans of the world, the Tipper Gores of the world talked about how this is what's really destroying, yeah. you know, white American society is these gangster rappers. And so Clinton famously calls her out uh, 
It compares her to David Duke, actually. And what's important is where he did it. This was at the Rainbow Coalition conference with Jesse Jackson right there on stage. And so I think that part has also been missed, too, that it was not just uh, a signal to Reagan Democrats that he's like willing to take on these black people who were dominating the Democratic Party. It was also a signal to Jesse Jackson and to the kind of left in the Democratic Party. This is my party now. I'm doing this at your conference. Jackson demanded an apology from him, and he never and he never got it. And that was his way of saying, "No, this is this is this is my party now." People also forget Clinton won with 43 percent of the vote because Ross Perot was in as a third party candidate. So it's not like he, uh, you know, that this new Democratic centrism was some resounding success. And that, more than anything else, is has become a rallying cry for today's left that says, look, if if you actually won with this pragmatism, that what you call pragmatism, then okay. Then then we can have then we can have a conversation. If if this centrism, if this compromising approach was actually keeping the fascists out of the gates, keeping the barbarians from raping and pillaging the village, okay. That then that, that's a plausible argument to make. But it's not. You got 43% with Bill Clinton. You lost to Bush. The one time you took a chance and, and nominated the unelectable person, Barack Obama, he, he wins twice. He then pivots to the center and loses 1,000 seats, and we end up with Trump. So the pragmatism isn't very pragmatic. And so the, the new generation, which did not experience the trauma of losing to Newt Gingrich and, and Ronald Reagan, doesn't have the fear of the Republican Party that the that the Pelosi's of the world have right. You you have this. So you know Clinton wins the ninety two election, and then uh, as you indicate in the midterms, then there's this sweeping uh, so called Republican revolution that brings Newt Gingrich to the position of mm-hmm. being Speaker of the right. House. Um, and at the same time, you had uh, Bill Clinton and the Democrats adopting very right-wing policies on drugs, on crime, you Welfare could, I, I think, argue on trade. race, on, yes, yeah. on all of these things, and very hawkish militaristic policies. But I, I want to zero in on the the crime bill and, and the, the so-called war on drugs under Bill Clinton, because it comes up quite often now because of Joe right. Biden being a sponsor of the crime bill, and then Kamala Harris you know, really bringing this up a lot and and trying to reform her own image. You know, people say, oh, Kamala Harris is a cop. She's now trying to attack Biden from the left mm-hmm. on the crime bill while kind of pushing aside the concerns about her own role in the criminal justice system in this country. But for people that don't have a living memory of it or, you know, weren't around then, explain Clinton's crime bill, uh, race policies, uh, war on drugs. Right. And and crime wasn't crime was an actual problem. Like the, it, it was a problem all across the country, and uh, partly or significantly because of the, the kind of uh, hollowing out of the manufacturing industry and the and the middle class and working classes that that Reagan and the deregulating Democrats brought about in the '80s. So you you do have a bottoming out, and and you do have a, a surge in crime, and so a, a response to that. Um, also a response to the civil rights movement, um, is just getting tougher and tougher and tougher. And there was, there was no political lever to push in the other direction. And so in, in both, both primaries, Democratic and Republican, the candidate who could uh, say that they were tougher on crime was the one who, who was going to win. And so it just keeps getting ratcheted up and up and up. 
Bill Clinton famously uh, calls for 100,000 new cops on the street and gets a you know, standing ovation for that. And that's a cornerstone of the, of the 94 crime bill. It, the idea is to just jack up sentences, uh, mandatory minimums, three strikes and you're out, lumping together a bunch of different things. So if you, if you sell weed but you also own a gun, then that becomes a violent crime. The, the sentence is exponentially greater. And so you wind up then with, throughout the 90s with crime rates falling, yet the prison population soaring. So you're like, well, wait a minute, how is... How are, how are there fewer crimes being committed, but yet more and more and more people are, are in prison? And one of the answers is that people are in prison for these extremely long sentences. And so, you know, starting in the early 1980s, you just have a, a practically a straight, you know, diagonal line up in the, in, and you go from, you know, fewer than half a million prisoners to well over two million. And then on, on the issue of welfare reform, I mean, I'm I'm originally from Wisconsin. At the time, the crime bill was was implemented. Um, I was a, a student in Wisconsin, and I remember uh, when Tommy Thompson was the governor at the time, a, a Republican, uh, and he had implemented sweeping so-called welfare reform uh, that was essentially, when you boil it down to it, it was forcing people to choose between um, having a job where they can't make enough money to live or accepting state aid and then having to live your life essentially in a police state uh, that is constantly monitoring every expense that you make. Uh, you know, this whole notion that in order to get welfare you have to work was a Tommy Thompson idea that then Bill Clinton more or less nationalized uh, with his omnibus welfare reform package that was, I mean, it was largely written by Republicans, but it was Bill Clinton who was championing it, shepherding it. Yeah, right. And welfare got racialized. Reagan helped, very much helped do that. So when, when people talk about Democrats going to the center, that's a, that, that's a euphemism for them, you know, distancing themselves from the from black people, and and from the civil rights era. That's that's essentially what they're talking about, and this was a huge part of that. This was Clinton's way of saying of saying, look, that promise that I made on the Rainbow Coalition stage when I called out Sister Soldier, I'm I'm delivering on that right now. I told you I would stick it to him. He was running for re-election, and his advisors told him, you know, you you sign welfare reform. And you're basically guaranteed, you're guaranteed to get re-election. Uh, Wendell Primus, who was a top HHS official at the time, resigned in protest over it. He's now one of Pelosi's top aides. And you had a couple others in the White House who, who resigned, who said this is going to increase uh, poverty and increase child poverty. Uh, and more or less, it, it has. And, it, and, and it, it has an illogic to it that says, um, you know, if you've received benefits for five years, that's it. Regardless, regardless of need. And like you said, it puts all these draconian work requirements on it. Now, welfare itself didn't need to be reformed it, because it had a gross kind of police surveillance aspect to it too, where you'd have government agents like raiding your house to try to find out if there was a man living in the house who might be benefiting from this $500 a month that you're getting. So it was Oh, you still have that in yeah. Section 8 housing in New mm -hmm. York City. Yeah, yeah right. I, mean, sure. I have friends sure. who are housing lawyers and it's like they they're still doing that. But right. yes, you're yeah, it was a it was a, a right. wider so this is not to yeah. valorize glamorize yeah. the original welfare program, but it's better than what it was turned into. Mm -hmm. Uh I want to talk a, a bit before we get to the the current situation of the Democratic Party about uh Barack Obama's impact be, becoming the not just the president but the the leader for those 8 years of the Democratic Party. 
you know, Obama launched his campaign, and I think he, you know, he wanted to give the impression that he was the anti-war candidate. Um, but in reality, the speech that he gave in Chicago in October of 2002, which really launched his uh, his national political aspirations and and campaign, uh, was a very carefully crafted speech with lots of ifs and thens in terms of the the position. And he, you know, he famously said, "I'm not against all wars. I, I'm against right. you know dumb wars, stupid wars." And that you know, and and essentially making the uh, a tactical argument against the Iraq war. And I often think of that as kind of a metaphor for how Obama governed. He would telegraph one thing and sort of there would be this perception. People would place onto the canvas mm -hmm. of Obama what they wanted to think he was. But in reality, he always, if you really took his words at their value, was saying, I'm not a leftist. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, and I actually am, uh, and a, would, would be a, a sort of uh, moderate Republican of the 90s. I mean, right. that was more or less how Obama, you know, he wasn't lying or being disingenuous. He was telegraphing exactly mm -hmm. who he was. But I, the sense I had was that people wanted to place onto him mm -hmm. an identity that Obama himself never even claimed, but he did craft his identity, in, and I mean political identity, in such a way that a lot of things were open to interpretation. It was sort of like the sophisticated, smart version of Trump saying, "Like, well, we'll see what happens." You know, right. Obama would allow people to think he was this thing, but in reality, you know, he was a pretty right-wing Democrat. Right, and it, it very much helped him that he was running against Hillary Clinton too, um, and that John, in that in that 08 primary, in that, in yeah, that, in that 08 primary, because she voted for the war without without the caveats of it being a dumb war, and so. Obama was, like you said, he was able to kind of fashion himself as an as an anti-war candidate, even though in the the district that he represented back in Chicago, anyway, that there was no other position for when he was official, in state government right, yeah. for an official to have. Like that's an anti-war kind of rich liberal area. Like those, they're they're not they're not they're not supporting the invasion. But but yeah, that that's exactly right. And so he he runs against Hillary Clinton two thousand seven two thousand eight, and against her. You know, he does. He does appear. You already want to believe. You know, the liberals wanted to believe that he was one of them. Um, you know, he must be. He's a great writer. He went to Harvard. He, he came. He was a community organizer. I think that that was a huge um, selling point to a lot of people. He must. He he must be a lefty. He's out there in the streets organizing. And so then, then you just look look at it through that prism. Then you see him getting attacked by you know Mark Penn, Hillary Clinton's advisor, as un-American. And it's easy to start defending him against all of these un, unfair attacks. And so th then you wind up with this massive, inspired, grassroots army of millions of people, you know, ready to, tra ready to transform politics. Um, and he, you know, could have brought that army with him into, into Washington with the sky falling, Wall Street completely collapsing, the economy on, on the brink. People were talking about the end of the Republican Party. Like what? What's going to be the new party that takes its place? It was that. It was that low of a moment for them, and they signaled right away it, before he was even sworn in that they were going to oppose him uh, on everything across the board, and that that was going to be their play. And still, he shut down the grassroots army, um, basically folded up what was called OFA, Organizing for America, put it under the DNC, and mothballed the thing, uh, and and ordered all the outside groups under threat of the, them getting their donors called by Rahm Emanuel or Jim Messina to also stop pressuring Republicans and stop pressuring blue dogs because he's got this. You know, he and Rahm are going to like work it out. They're going to sit down with Susan Collins. 
They're going to they're going to figure this thing out. And if if you push, it's only going to cause problems for the blue dogs in the, in the midterms. So just just let us handle this. And of course, all those blue dogs lost anyway, which goes back to the idea that the pragmatism isn't actually that pragmatic either. Well, and Rahm, Rahm Emanuel was much more vicious toward left Democrats sure. than he ever was toward the Republicans. It's the only Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Time that that legendary ruthlessness is actually deployed in any effective way. Oh, I remember early on, remember early on, I don't remember if it was the first defense authorization bill, but early on in Obama's time as president, there was a, there was a movement among progressive Democrats to try to hold up uh, defense spending. And Rahm, I believe it was your reporting at the time, but Rahm Emanuel is the guy that goes over, you know, basically with the baton to start hitting the kneecaps of, of left wing, you know, the handful of left wingers mm-hmm. that actually exist in the Democratic Party. Right. Whenever there would be a peep from the progressive side, they'd either be called into the White House or Rahm would go down. I read about this in the book. Or Rahm would go down to Capitol Hill and and break some kneecaps. When the blue dogs uh, would, these would are the, start, these, baying, these are the openly kind of right wing, openly right wing, kind yeah. of the yeah the 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 descendants of the the Southern Dixiecrats. Um, when they would complain, Rahm would come down uh, to the Capitol. So, what do you need, boys? You know, what can what can I do for you? Can I massage your knee? Yeah. Are you, no, is right. your knee okay? Yes. Wait a minute. Is that Bernie Sanders? <laughs> Baton. Wait. Oh, hello, right wing Democrat. Can I just massage the knee a little bit? And th- and the re- the results mattered because they'd say, well, you know, this stimulus is too big. We want we want 150 billion taken out of it. Boom. There goes like one and a half points worth of unemployment that you could have, you know, pulled off of off of the economy. And and Ron, get it get it done. Joe Joe Lieberman. Uh, doesn't like the way that the public option sounds. Rahm Emanuel, just get it done, take it out, get it done. You know, so he 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 his his toughness was exclusively reserved for the left. And anytime anybody on the right or the center had any problems, he he easily would just meet them, almost as if he was fine to do exactly what they were asking. So that, then, in 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 2016, um, we we had. It boiling down to Hillary Clinton and uh, Bernie Sanders. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on 2016 uh, for all sorts of reasons, um, uh, but in part because we've also discussed it quite a bit on the show. But one part of 2016 I wanted to ask you about, and that is when we talk about uh, the the documents, uh, John Podesta's emails, DNC emails, um, you know, I, I don't want to make this about WikiLeaks right now. What did those documents show that Hillary Clinton's campaign was doing toward Bernie Sanders and his campaign, not not a lot, right? I mean, it, it, they were they were. I mean, the Clinton campaign was you know infuriated by the Sanders campaign and and felt like it was uh, that that it was undignified that she was even 
you know, having to deal with this socialist from Vermont. Or, or anyone for that matter. Or it anyone was, for that matter. This was, was a coronation. Right. It was, this, was not, this was not a primary. This was meant to be a very long coronation and Sanders got in the way of that. Right. And they started clearing the field as early as right after the 2012 election. You had a, uh, all of the women in the Senate except for Warren signed a letter saying, run Hillary, run, and don't anybody else run against her. Um, and Sanders didn't want to run. Like he was trying to get Warren to run. He was hoping somebody else would run and just so that there could be some competing ideas put out in the primary. And so when nobody would, then he eventually uh, was like, okay, fine, I'll do this. Somebody's got to make the argument. But he was very clear from the beginning he was not trying to win out of the gate. That was sort of an accident uh, that Clinton was so unpopular and, and his ideas were so popular that he, he almost almost uh, got to her. Uh, the, probably the most damaging thing that came out of there was were the Goldman Sachs speeches, speech transcripts. And uh, I had, I didn't think it would seriously work, but I, I, I had reached out to the campaign at some point in 2015. I think it was Karen Finney. I said, look, these speeches are going to come out at some point. Leak them to me. I'll do, I'll do the story right now and I'll light you guys up because I'm sure it's ridiculous, whatever she said to <laughs> Goldman Sachs. It's going to come out, like, get it out, get it out now and give it to me. And he's like, ha, no, we're actually, we're not going to release these to anybody ever. Um, in hindsight, they should have taken my uh, my my helpful advice at that at that time and and put them out in 2015 because then when they finally did come out because WikiLeaks forced them out now it's you're, it's close to the election uh, and you have the, the 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 fact of the private speeches married with the the years long effort uh, to keep them private which which just imbues them with a suspicion um, which is warranted. Uh, and, and then she go, comes out and says, I think in a debate, uh, look, you say some things privately and you say different things publicly. That's how this works. Like, oh, <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. Well, yeah, we, we, we were aware that that's how you operate, but it's amazing to hear you say that, say it out loud. And so it, it just, um, you know, it, it really, uh, she already had the impression that she'd say whatever she wanted to get elected. Um, she, there was already the impression that she was too close to Wall Street and to, to wealthy interests. And, and, this, and that just underlined it for everybody. It was something that you could just understand in, in one sentence, you know, $700,000 speaking to Goldman Sachs. Coming out of the 2016 election, I mean, this may be an oversimplification. You can put whatever nuance you want in this, but it does seem like there is a very clear split in the Democratic Party right now, where on the one hand, you have the the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. And then on the other hand, you have, I mean, you, you could say the Bernie Sanders wing, but really it's it's more of a of a left front mm -hmm. that is sort of, you know, arguing against the Pelosi, Clinton, Obama worldview and trying to do things differently. You have, what, what is it now, 24 uh, yeah, people like that, running yeah. for the Democratic nomination. Give give a kind of overview in the context of of the twenty twenty election of where the Democratic Party is today and and what are the dynamics within it? Right, and it, it's it's sort of the wing uh, that was represented by Jesse Jackson and then was vanquished throughout much of the nineties, and it it kind of rises again, sort of accidentally through Howard Dean. Uh, Howard Dean was not that progressive of a candidate. Uh, but again, he, he kind of appeared like it next to everybody else. He was the only candidate uh, who was running on opposition to the Iraq war. Uh, and because he was from Vermont, people felt like, oh, well, he must be 
pretty liberal. And, and he's a doctor who talked about universal health care. So it was check, check, check for a lot of progressives. And so the blogosphere was just getting going then. Move On was just getting the ability to raise big amounts of money online. And so all of a sudden, he has a well-funded you know, and organized uh, campaign, which you know, falls apart at, at the very end. The, the, everybody talks about his scream. But actually, if you remember this, the thing, that, the thing that undid him was he said something like he didn't want Saddam Hussein executed. I think like there was some comment around Saddam Hussein, and the entire Democratic primary electorate was like, "Oh, we're gonna—he's gonna get beat by Bush. Bush is too tough. We're gonna be too weak." And they—they—they they, they went into their shells, and they're like, "Let's do John Kerry." You know, they—they no, they can't question his military credentials. Um, but all of the uh, the the learning and the organizing that had gone on around the the Dean campaign then fueled. Uh, other campaigns um, in 2006, and, th and then also the Obama campaign, um, and it, it flows into it flows into Occupy. And just just into, one note on before right. you before you go on with that uh, one just bookend on on Howard Dean. He he then goes on to be head of the Democratic National Committee, uh, and 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 has just steadily moved himself even further and further right. and further to the right. He's taken money from the MEK, mm -hmm. uh, a, a group that's agitating for regime change in uh, Iran, and had been for many years uh, a, a officially designated terror organization by the State Department. And Howard Dean helped lobby against that, uh, and he's now just basically a right wing Democrat mm -hmm. attack dog going after. Anyone on the left he's within the Democratic for, Party, he's a gun. Yeah. yeah, he's a he's a gun for hire. Uh, he's a Lanny Davis that has managed to get elected to office uh, before. Right. But yeah, I mean, he's in that camp of people. Right, now. right. But the people that um, tried to get him elected, um, those were actual lefties. Oh, for sure. I mean, so I remember they, right. covering him in, in you know in New Hampshire and elsewhere, and it was the same thing you saw with Obama that people were projecting on mm -hmm. to Howard Dean. Uh, you know everything that they right. that they want in a candidate, and it's like you know, the evidence isn't really there. You know, I mean, Howard Dean had promoted the idea uh, that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. When I asked him about that uh, at an event in New Hampshire, he said, "Well, I said that because somebody in the Clinton team had told me that." Oh, well, oh, oh that go. well, that that really gives you confidence <laughs> yes. that this is a guy who's going to be sifting yes. and winnowing through the intelligence. But in in any case, so then we 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 get to twenty. 16, uh, Trump uh, wins the Electoral College, defeating Hillary Clinton. And you, you were about to talk more about the big picture of the Democratic right. Party that, as it exists today. Yeah. And what, what Dean and then to a, to a degree Obama and then Bernie Sanders did is that they created an alternative kind of funding structure. You know, Obama did both. He had a huge small dollar operation and also tons of money from Wall Street and, and other places. Um, but Obama showed that you could raise an extraordinary amount of money online for a presidential campaign, which was the kind of the promise of, of the Dean campaign back in 03. And then Bernie Sanders kind of actualized that. And then you see that, that what, what's happened in 2020 with the DNC even leaning into it, saying everybody needs to have 65,000 small donors to get on the stage. And, and you know, when, when we were kids, every quarter, the candidates would brag about how much money they had raised, who their bundlers were, the names of the lobbyists that were bundling money for them. And that was a mark of seriousness. That doesn't happen anymore. They, they hide that. They don't, they don't publicize who their bundlers are. Well, Joe but, Biden is kind of, buy, is, is, is kind of shamelessly uh, Biden's a little different sailing toward big money. Right. Yeah. Yes, because he can't raise small money. Um, and the knock on him had been that he was so lazy that he was doing all this pro-corporate work for free, basically. 
uh, and that he wasn't going to be able to raise big money. And so he has internalized that. And so he's like, no, look, I really can. <laughs> like these, these companies will, they will pay up. These rich people do like me. Um, but otherwise, the candidates brag it's about- It's kind of like political Viagra. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, okay, I'll just go and take yes. the, uh, the, the big money. <laughs> uh, otherwise, the candidates just say, I ha- my average donation was this small. I had this many small donors um, to show that they have this, this broad base of support. And what that's done is it's set up an alternative kind of funding structure for the rival wing of the party. You know, Jesse Jackson didn't really have that. You know, he had, there, was, there wasn't an efficient way for people to say, Wow, Jesse Jackson. He's, we're, we're almost forty primaries in, and he's neck and neck for the nomination. I want to give him thirty dollars. There wasn't really a way. There was some. There was mail, but there wasn't really a way for people to express their support for people in the way there is now, where you can just tap your phone every time that Bernie Sanders gets attacked, and you want to fight back. You say, "All right, here, take another, take another of my five dollars." Um, and so that has really changed the calculation. And since. It was a weird accident that they started taking big money in the first place. It means it's not part of the DNA. The, like, the party is not built only to take big money. The party could be taken over by, by small donors. How, how do you let, let's let's um, I, I, I would leave it to you to decide which ones we talk about right now because you're in the weeds on this stuff and cover it all the time. But I, I do want to get some thoughts about a variety of candidates um, from you. Do you want to start with? Sure. Who do you want to start with? Doesn't matter. All right, Elizabeth yeah. Warren. I mean, she Elizabeth Warren. People left her for dead, um, and you know uh, they, they ridiculed her for because uh, of her the DNA D- test. DNA stuff. And um, the campaign's idea was, this is gonna suck. We're gonna do it now, December, October. October they did it, um, so that by you know the middle of. Uh, 2019, you know, we can focus more on our campaign and get this Pocahontas thing behind us. And you know, they have what doubled in the polls. There, you know, she's she's the the idea of like putting out ideas uh, seems seems to be working. And it's not necessarily uh, chipping away at Bernie's support. You're seeing Bernie rise as well. If every gain that Warren made was at the expense of Bernie. Then it'd be kind of like a, a zero-sum game for the left, and they were, that meant they were just going to get wiped out eventually. But they both are they both are rising. Why, why is it that when you turn on uh, almost any news program now that's talking about this, they're just talking about how Biden is pulling away? Like what what the hell? What what's going on? They're like, oh, Biden's pulling ahead, and constantly on CNN. I hear Biden's pulling ahead. Biden's getting widening his lead. It comes from this basic error, a mental error that people were making that was. Okay, yes, Biden's polling at 35% right now, but when he gets in, you know, he's going to collapse. And so he got in, and then three days later, he hadn't collapsed. And so everybody's like, oh, well, we must have been wrong. We were sure he was going to collapse. He didn't collapse in three days. So therefore, uh, he's going to surge and pull away with it. But like the idea that th- that 35%, most of whom are barely paying attention uh, to the election, we're going to change their mind within a week of him officially announcing. Of that 35%, what percent do you think even know that he transitioned from saying he was thinking about running to actually running? Like probably not a ton of them. People are not following it close enough. But I, what I'm getting at though is is uh, that you, you see this and you see it from a lot of like uh, Hillary camp people online that Biden is just crushing it in the polls. And I'm asking you like, w- what is that all about? Well, it, it worked for Hillary. 
the, the argument for Hillary was inevitability and electability. And so you should support her because she's going to win. Uh, and it's circular. And so you have to keep saying it. Uh, it's, it's like a, a balloon that you just have to keep blowing air into. Otherwise, otherwise it just sinks. So that's, that's really what it is. Because like, Biden doesn't have anything else that he's selling to the Democratic primary electorate other than that, I'm going to win this and then I'm going to beat Trump and I'll beat him up behind the gym. Is the um, uh, the conduct of Joe Biden during the Anita Hill uh, confirmation going to continue to be um, a problem for him? Yeah, it, it you know it 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 is a problem for him. A lot of people remember uh, how how badly he handled that, and his inability to actually apologize for it means that it'll just keep coming up. The way that uh, Hillary Clinton, you remember, was dogged for months. Um, be, being asked to apologize for her vote for the Iraq war. And she just wouldn't do it. She would just do it and she can at least move on. Might not help with a lot of people, but at least it ends ends that conversation. But Biden has said he's never made a mistake in his life. I mean, what he said, I don't regret anything I've ever done, is what he says. Um, and so he goes and he's, he goes around defending the crime bill. Um, you know, he's he's not somebody who's like, I was wrong. Um, you know, the party was wrong at the time. I was doing what I, what I thought was right. Um, I've seen the light and this is how we should be doing this now. He says, I've always been progressive. I've always done the right thing. And that forces him to defend things that nobody thinks are the right thing anymore. What about Kamala Harris? So she, I think she benefits from, I don't know if it's racism or just ignorance um, on the part of a lot of the press that would that say... Uh, Kamala Harris is black, therefore black people will vote for her. It's, it, you know, it, it's kind of a, a, a gross oversimplification. Um, and so she's actually going to end up suffering from that in, in this sense. Like, as it becomes clear that that's not the case, the press is going to say, wait a minute, we thought that all black people would support her because she's black and that's not happening. So there must be something wrong with her candidacy. Well, no, that wasn't, you know, you that that sh that shouldn't be the expectation uh, to begin with, you know. The thing that she's also lacking is kind of a a why, like why is she running for president? Uh, you know, she, she um, you know what's her what's her vision for the country? Because she doesn't have the obvious, uh, and this is racist. Also, she doesn't have the I'm electable, and I can beat Trump because in this country, electable and can beat Trump means I'm a white guy. Um, so she doesn't have that. And she also doesn't have a Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders style. This is my vision for how the country should be governed and, and transformed. So you're left with a, well, what, what, what's going on here? And so um, when you're talked about as a top tier candidate, but you, but you continue to hover under 10%, um, that, that, that chips away at, at your, your sheen of kind of uh, inevitability or electability. Uh, she... Certainly, she gets talked about all the time as vice president for, if it's Joe Biden or or something like that, and she she has a I'm sure a big career ahead of her, um, but what what exactly the path is remains unclear. She'd have to, you'd have to have Biden collapse and her to kind of take over the Biden lane for the you know the the Hillary Clinton type aides. I mean, I, I I do I mean she you know all politics is 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 performance at some level, but I I do think that both. 
uh, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris are remarkably good mm -hmm. uh, lawmakers when it comes to interrogating um, hostile witnesses. Uh, and you know, obviously, Kamala Harris spent a lot of, of time in law enforcement and as a prosecutor. And it, I, I personally think it would be utterly fascinating to watch Kamala Harris debate Donald Trump mm -hmm. and and to see how she would meticulously prepare for that. You know, it's like in many movies, the prosecutors are the good guys. Um, right. You know, and you know, and it would be interesting if she would say, you know, there are a lot of people out there that need to be prosecuted. And I have the, I have the skills to prosecute those those people. You know, we have been letting elites get away with criminal behavior for for far too long, and try to use it that way. Um, but she does the same thing with Biden, where she says she was a progressive prosecutor, which isn't true. She ran against progressive prosecutors. She was stridently a tough on crime prosecutor. And so, rather than kind of owning up to that and saying I was I was wrong, the times have changed, because I don't believe she does believe she's wrong, which is, that's totally her right. Um, but that's why she can't get to that place. Why is Beto O'Rourke still in the race? I mean, you you write about the, the you know, the, the incredible success of his failed mm -hmm. bid for Senate, but it was, it, you know, it was an impressive campaign and he came close to pulling off something that, that I think uh, almost no one thought could happen prior to that race. But what, why is he still hanging around? He doesn't... It doesn't seem like there's this huge Beto wave right. nationally. Well, he enjoys it. Uh, you oh, know, oh, good. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's why we run for president now. When he said, yeah, we got nothing else to do. I mean, his, when, his position that he they staked out at that CNN town hall on health care, it's like, you know, uh, I think a lot of people are just like, he doesn't even have that. You know, right. like, why, why are we here? Why do we have to listen to Beto O'Rourke's ideas about America? Yeah. And when, when he famously said in that Vanity Fair article that he was born to be in this, um, he didn't... He didn't mean born to be president. What he meant is he just loves campaigning. He loves going around and talking to people. Um, he he did it for two years in Texas, and he was bored immediately afterwards and hit the, hit the road again. So it's, it's like he's forcing us all to go and and report on his fish tour. You know, right. he's just he's yeah. jamming with the the didgeridoo with the band, and and oh yeah, and by the way, I'm also running for president. But yeah, so he um, the problem is he I think he he believed that he. He had a much better chance of winning that, than he did. And as a result of that, he discarded the tactics that he had used in his, in his Senate campaign, discarded the actual Bernie people who had organized his Texas Senate campaign and replaced them with uh, Obama people, the very ones who had, who had actively shut down OFA, like the, the officials who were overseeing that, that project of shutting down um, his grassroots army. They shut down Beto's grassroots army, believing that Biden wasn't really serious and that the the kind of Obama world of establishment figures would wind up getting behind Beto and he'd be lifted to victory because nobody else was a kind of, they could conceivably see as winning the nomination. And so he stopped fighting for it. Uh, and he, like you said, he, he drifted away from Medicare for all. He abandoned his kind of organizing approach that he'd been taking. And it turned out that he was not you know, in the position that he thought he was in. And so now he's down to, you know, way down in the, down to closer to zero. What about the Hawaii congressperson, Tulsi Gabbard, you know, who is a, a Iraq war veteran, uh, has uh, come under fire for previous positions on everything ranging from uh, gay rights to 
uh, expressing support for extremist Hindu politicians and institutions, to more recently the fact that she went to Syria and met with Bashar al-Assad and has been very, very opposed to any U.S. military action um, aimed at unseating uh, Assad. And and our colleague Glenn Greenwald recently did a, a, a long sit-down interview with her where he brought up some of these critiques. But the way that she is handled when she goes on major uh, TV networks, primarily on on, on CNN, is it, it's extremely hostile and seem and and the the way that she's interviewed seems intent on defending the good name of Imperial right, America, and right. that's that's how it's uh, that's how it's presented. But what, what's going on with that campaign? She's badly undermined by Sanders' presence in the campaign. Like her, you know, she rose to national prominence at the end of the campaign by quitting the DNC and in, and endorsing Bernie, which might not be popular to point out. She did, what happened long after the campaign was over. Like you know, if if you if you date the kind of end of the the Sanders campaign in April or or May or so, it's nice that Tulsi went public with with her dissatisfaction with how the DNC handled that and and endorsed Bernie. But it didn't do him any good at that point. It did her an enormous amount of good, and, and all of uh, the Sanders goodwill kind of drifted over to her. If he hadn't run, you'd have a she'd have a a core of supporters that would be out organizing for her. But her, her reason to be in is less clear with him in because they, they agree on, I mean, she, she, she certainly makes a bigger deal out of anti-imperialism than he does, uh, but they agree on that, on that issue. So at that point, you're like, well, what, what, what are you bringing to the campaign that, that Sanders isn't, since Sanders is kind of the one that brought you to the campaign in the first place? Well, I mean, she would probably say that she was a combat veteran, that she's a woman, Sure. Uh, that and she represents a much younger generation in politics. She has far more right to run. Oh, and everybody has a right to run. She has far more reason to run than at least a dozen of these dudes for, for the reasons that you mentioned. But her lane was always going to be on the progressive side. And with, with Bernie and Warren taking it all up, it's just really hard to see. What about what's going on now with the Bernie Sanders campaign? He's it's 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 not a case at this point certainly that he's just running away with it and that there's any inevitability to it in part because of Biden being in the race. But it's I, I see it more as you have Sanders and Warren and then you know a, a a handful of other people that are sort of to the left of the Pelosi Democratic Party. And then you have the massive Clinton-Pelosi machine that will produce somebody and that they believe that that person is going to have the the nomination. And we don't know who that is at this point. It looks like Biden is the anointed one, but who knows what what, what yeah. happens. But what, what's going on with Bernie Sanders, given that there's a field of 24 people, there is Elizabeth Warren, there is Tulsi Gabbard. Um, is it operating the way it did in 2016 as he... Uh, running a successful fundraising operation? Is he going up in the polls? I think he's running a much better campaign in 2020, just functionally, operationally, than he was in, in 2016. It's much more professional campaign, and it's and it's much more bottom-up, organizer-driven, whereas in 2016, for all of its revolutionary talk, it was fairly traditional in the sense that they were raising money, now not the traditional way, but they were raising money to fund a field program and go up on TV in early states. Like that was, now what their message was different, but the strategy was the same. Right now, they're running a very you know distributed campaign where they're trying to empower their organizers all over the country to organize in places where they don't have paid field staff. They're raising money at an even faster clip 
than they did in, in 2016. He is ticking up in the polls, but the psyche of the Democratic primary voter plays into this in a disturbing way in the sense that they just uh, can't, a lot of voters can't convince themselves that a uh, Democratic Socialist is quote unquote electable. And so his 40 plus percent that he got in 2016 relied on some protest vote against Clinton. He was the, he was the alternative. O'Malley was just not doing it <laughs> as the alternative. And some protest against the system and some who were voting for him because they thought he could win and would, would be president. But by no means was that 100 percent of, of his base. And so the ones that weren't in that base are now out shopping around for other candidates. If he can pull off a win in Iowa, that's the thing about being unelectable. If you show yourself to be electable, that changes everything. Barack Obama's numbers among black voters before Iowa were in, in the single digits because they quite reasonably said, this country's not going to elect Barack Obama, so I'm not going to waste my vote on somebody that they're not going to elect. When Obama won Iowa, overnight in the black community, his, his numbers went from single digits to well into the majority. And within weeks, he had sewed up the, the black vote. When it, when it became clear, oh, actually, the, these corn-fed kids out in Iowa voted for this guy. He could, he could actually win. So if Sanders can win in Iowa and then can win in New Hampshire, the aura of winning can create the impression of electability and the aura of losing, let's say Biden loses those, it, it damages the, the impression of his own electability. And so that really is the only way that I see something like that turning around. Maybe you have a Warren and Ocasio-Cortez getting in behind him at, at, a, at a key moment around that time and creating kind of a, a new sense of inevitability around a Sanders presidency, but it's, it's really threading a needle. But he would, ha he would have to do something about that impression that he can't win. But the, the, the open hostility toward Bernie Sanders that continues or even is increasing in some, some quarters of the Democratic Party is real. I mean, this, there yeah. is this just fierce hatred for Bernie Sanders in certain sectors of the, the Democratic Party. If Sanders does win the Democratic nomination, what happens to all those extremely angry people who seem to think that Sanders is worse than Donald Trump in, in, in some ways? Right. And, I mean, and, and, what, right. what happens then in the Democratic Party? Right. Does somebody like Howard Schultz run just to spoil it for, for Democrats at that point and get 5% and throw it to Trump? That's the risk with that. And that's the threat. Like that's the that that's kind of the point. I don't think Howard Schultz's own staff would vote for him. Right, I no, mean, it's no, right, but I'm, I'm talking right. about like, are these people even going to vote for Bernie Sanders? Right, are they going to so, write in Hillary Clinton? Well, the good news for Democrats or for Bernie supporters would be that they almost all live in Washington or New York. And so they don't live in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. <laughs> Those are the key states yeah. that are going to swing the, the presidential election. And so you know, whatever Nicole Wallace wants to do, she can do. But the question of can Bernie win those three key states is what decides whether or not he can beat Trump. And if you talk to Republicans, interestingly, Republicans who know those states well, they believe that Bernie is a major threat in a state like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, because not only does he galvanize the uh, Democratic base support, but he does appeal to the kind of angry independents who 
would who just want to cast a, a screw you vote. Like they, they can just as happily cast it for Bernie Sanders as as they can for Trump. And so Republicans, ironically, are are more convinced of I think Sanders' electability in those states than Democrats are. Ryan Grimm, congrats again on the book, and thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. Ryan Grimm is the Intercept's Washington D.C. bureau chief. His new book, From Strong Arm Press, is called, quote, We've Got People, From Jesse Jackson to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.